reading of God's word. Joel 2, 12 through 32. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. This is the Well, good morning, Redemption Hill. If you have a copy of God's word, meet me in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. In Matthew 16, uh, there's a story from Jesus' life where Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? The disciples reply, well, some some say you're John the Baptist, and other people say that you're an Old Testament prophet like Jeremiah or Elijah. But then Jesus focuses in. He says, who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who said, you are the Christ. 
the Son of the living God. In our text today in Acts chapter 2, the same Peter is about to give the first Christian sermon ever. And if you were with us last week, you remember that the followers of Jesus had received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and they went into the city and talked about Jesus with all the people coming into Jerusalem from all over the world. And the amazing thing were that all those people from all, from all over the world could understand the followers of Jesus in their own native languages. Some marveled at this in the crowd, but others mocked them and said, eh, they're just drunk. It's that point that Peter is going to refute. He's going to explain why the people are seeing what they're seeing. And the same confession Peter made in Matthew chapter 16 is the main point of his sermon in Acts 2. Look at Acts 2.36. This is how Peter ends his sermon. This is the main point, his thesis, what he's trying to prove. Acts 2.36 says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's goal is to prove that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Messiah. It's not Jesus' last name. Uh, it, it has a meaning in the original language. Uh, in English, those terms, both Christ and Messiah, mean anointed one. In the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were anointed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit anointed them to uh, better serve and lead the people. It was an equipping David was considered Israel's greatest king, a man after God's own heart. And God made a covenant with David. God promised David that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever. And generation after generation of David's descendants came and went, and with no one to fulfill this promise, this Messiah that they were looking for. So the Jewish people in Acts chapter 2 were still looking for this Messiah years and years and years and hundreds of centuries later. And Peter is making the argument that Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Well, what does it matter for us in 2023 that Jesus is the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises? That's what we're going to look at today. That's the question we're going to answer. So let's bow our heads and pray, and then we're going to hop into our text. Lord, we need you today. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. May I speak truly, wisely, and clearly for your name's sake. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is that the Messiah sends the Holy Spirit. The Messiah sends the Holy Spirit. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. 
even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter begins by saying that he ad- he's addressing the men of Jerusalem and Judea. This indicates that he's not speaking to the whole multicultural crowd that had come to Jerusalem. He was speaking specifically to locals. And that makes sense because it was the locals that had seen Jesus' ministry firsthand. They would know about what he did in his lifetime. They would know about his crucifixion. And Peter actually brings that up later on, that they know who Jesus was and they know about the crucifixion. And it also fulfills what Jesus commanded his followers in Acts 1.8, that they would begin to share his gospel to, the, to Jerusalem and Judea. So he begins by explaining what they're seeing. They're, he says, they're not drunk. It's too early in the day. It's only the third hour, which we would call nine o'clock. Now, clearly, Peter had not been to OSU's campus on game day. <laughs> but... In Jerusalem, apparently, nine is too early to get hammered. (laughs) Then he quotes a prophecy about the Messiah from the book of Joel. Uh, We read that in our uh, public reading this morning. Specifically, verses 17 and 18 talk about a coming day when God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Not just on prophets and kings and judges. He would pour out his spirit on all of God's covenant people, all that were united to him through Christ. As we talked about before, the Holy Spirit was active in the Old Testament, but only for those certain leaders, for certain anointed people. And it was largely an equipping role. The Holy Spirit anointed them to effectively and wisely lead God's people. So that's why, if you're familiar with the book of Kings, it says the Spirit departed from Saul. Because it wasn't a sign and seal of Saul's salvation, it was an equipping role of the Spirit. And that's why David prays after the Bathsheba incident in the Psalms. He writes, do not let your spirit depart from me. But Joel prophesied that the Messiah would initiate a new era in world history. The last days, which it talked about, are the New Testament says that's the period between Pentecost, what we talked about last week, and between Jesus' second coming. So we are in the last days right now in the way that Joel talked about them. In the last days, God would pour out his Holy Spirit on all flesh. This would include men and women young and old, rich and poor. All of God's people would receive the Spirit. It's a fulfillment of what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. In John 14, Jesus promised, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, through the Son, the Father sends the Spirit to all who believe in Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus, he dwells in you and he dwells in me. The greatest gift God can give us, he has given. And this is something Josh touched on last week. More than a spiritual gift, he gives us himself. 
Pastor Tim Keller helped me to understand this truth uh, more clearly through a illustration with the Lord of the Rings. Uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the main character's name is Frodo. And Frodo is given by his uncle a, uh, a shirt of mail, kind of like if you've ever seen in a movie about knights at the round table, it's like one of those chain link shirts. And he's given a coat of mail, and he decides to wear it under his clothes during his adventure. At one point in the story, though, Frodo learns more about this coat. And he learns that the coat of mail is actually made from a very valuable metal called mithril. In fact, in the story, mithril is worth more than silver, gold, or platinum. And Frodo realizes that this coat of mail is extremely valuable. In fact, he realizes that under his shirt was an item that was worth more than everything else in his country put together. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the Holy Spirit of the living God dwells in us, dwells in you? The Holy Spirit, God himself, the third person of the Trinity, who is the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, whom with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who inspired the scriptures and spoke through the prophets. That Holy Spirit dwells in us. No longer just the elite, no longer just leaders. He dwells with us. Who descended like a dove on Jesus at his baptism. So as we sang about before, trusting in the promises of Christ, let us delight and rest in the Spirit and His promises. Do you doubt God's faithfulness to keep His promises? Know that the Holy Spirit is a down payment of our inheritance, that Christ surely will bring us to Himself to eternal life, and He gives us His Holy Spirit as a down payment. Are you fearful? Remember that you were not given a spirit of fear to fall back into slavery, but a spirit of adoption who calls out with us, Abba, Father. Are you struggling with sin? Remember that he is the Holy Spirit. He transforms us by the renewing of our minds, by unveiling our eyes to see Christ, and by seeing Christ transforming us from one degree of glory to another. And he will ensure that the good work that God began in us will be brought to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And as you strive for holiness, he will supernaturally work alongside you. There is hope. There is hope for change. Are you lonely? Know that Jesus promised not to leave us as orphans and sent the Spirit to connect us to him. Through the Spirit, Christ abides in us and we abide in Christ. And we are bonded with Jesus. Theologians call this union with Christ. We are united to Christ in a way that no power in the universe can separate. And how beautiful this union with Christ through his Spirit is. And it's even more beautiful because it unites us with Christ in his resurrection. And that's... Peter's next argument, he shows that the Messiah is risen. The Messiah is risen. 
Looking at Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, Peter continues his argument saying, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Peter attested, began his argument by saying he's attesting to what the men of Jerusalem and Judea had lived through firsthand, the crucifixion. He points out that Jesus' crucifixion was not an accident, that God had sovereignly brought it about, Yet at the same time, he does not deny the sinful human agency of the soldiers and crowds. And then he turns to the resurrection. He quotes Psalm 16, verses it was written by David, who we talked about before as the great king of Israel, who, uh, whose throne would be filled by one of his descendants forever. Most importantly, Peter quotes in verse 27, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. Well, Peter says, David can't be talking about himself. We, his audience lived in Jerusalem and in that surrounding area. He said, you guys know where David's buried. You can go and find his bones right now. We know he did not rise from the dead. So he must be talking about the Messiah. And, there, and Peter says, we were all witnesses. He, our, I and the followers of Jesus were all witnesses of the risen Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Because there is a tomb in Jerusalem that is empty. And that's the tomb of the Lord Jesus. He died for the very sins and the very sinners that killed him. For your sins and for mine. But on the third day, God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And Peter says he and the eleven and the other followers of Jesus were all witnesses. They saw with their own eyes that Jesus had risen from the dead. And if we are united to Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as we mentioned before, this means amazing things for you and I. It, also, it means that we share in his death and his resurrection. 
Look with me at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This passage talks about the old self. The default state of every human being is to be rebellious against God, to do evil against God and against our neighbors. And the Bible calls this evil and this rebellion sin. Every single one of us has done that evil. It, this default fleshly mindset. And Paul later says in the same book of Romans that the mindset of the flesh is death. Every single one of us was dead in our sins. But through Christ, something miraculous happens. If we put our faith in Christ, then that default person dies. It's as if we were united with Christ on that cross and we died with Christ. The old person died with Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about. He says, when we have been united, if we have been united with him in a death like his. And not only that, we're not only united with Christ in his death, we are also united with Christ in his resurrection. Therefore, we are given new life, what the Bible calls a new birth. And this resurrection life is no longer enslaved to sin like the old default person was. Paul later says, for one who has died has been set free from sin. The old sinful life is dead. And the new resurrection life in union with Christ is marked by love of God and love of neighbor. But friends, how often are we tempted to reopen the casket? To peek back at this sinful life we once had. To take a step back into the mindset of the flesh. We know that in our resurrection life, we are called to purity. But maybe one day when you're bored, you remember a website that you're tempted to look at that does not meet that standard of purity, has videos and pictures that do not meet that standard. And you know you shouldn't go to it. But you keep dwelling on it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And you think maybe just a little while wouldn't hurt. And you reopen that casket just a little bit take a peek back. We know that we are a people that are to trust God, a people who are anxious for nothing and trust God to provide for us. Not a people marked by laziness, but a people who are able to work hard without frenzy or anxiety. But then a busy day turns into a busy week, turns into a busy month, turns into a busy year. And as we're running around like chickens with our heads cut off, in the back of our minds, we know we need to slow down and take time to be with the Lord to trust him. But we worry about how everything will get done if we don't maintain our frantic pace and have everything on our own shoulders. 
and we reopen that casket of self-dependence just a little bit. Maybe you see something online that makes you upset. Maybe it's a political article someone posts on social media. Maybe it's an Instagram picture of your friend's perfect life or perfect family. And you know that you shouldn't dwell on it, but you find yourself stewing on it and thinking about it and thinking about it and thinking about it. And feelings of anger or envy crop up. And, as, and you open that casket as you dwell on those sinful thoughts. But beloved, here's the thing. When we open that casket back up, we find ourselves holding nothing but bones and rotting flesh. Not in the sense that we have lost our salvation. Once someone is united to Christ, nothing in the universe can separate us from him. But it's like eating. There's lots of toxic stuff that we can eat that won't kill us. But that doesn't mean it won't do a lot of damage. It, sin causes pain. It causes godly grief because we betray and disobey the God who loved us and died for us. It damages our relationships with one another. It produces anxiety and guilt. As one of my seminary professors said, Satan wants to make sin looking as pleasing as possible before we act and beat us over the head with it after. Beloved, Remember, that person, that life, that mindset of the flesh is dead. It's crucified. We are freed from slavery to sin. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Therefore, put to death the deeds of the flesh. Walk in the resurrection life that Jesus has purchased us for. And as I've been preparing this sermon, as I've been meditating on this truth, this passage has been very helpful for me. As I think about that quote from Dr. Lawless about how sin looks so enticing before we act and then so terrible and so guilt-producing after. So in those moments of temptation this week, I began picturing sin not as pleasurable as the enemy would like to have us think it is. So I take that thought captive and have been thinking picturing dead, rotting bones. Because the truth is, that's what our sin is. It is dead and rotting bones. Beloved, take our thoughts captive. Put to death the deeds of the flesh. The good news for coffin openers like you and me is that we were born again to a living hope. Because not only is Christ risen, not only is Christ alive, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, interceding for us. And that's our third implication of Jesus as Messiah. It's that the Messiah ascended. The Messiah ascended. Look at verses 34 and 35 in Acts chapter 2. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter again quotes, is quoting the Psalms. He's quoting this time Psalm 110, again written by David. And again, he's providing a contrast. He's saying, we know that David did not ascend to God, that he must be talking about someone else, because again, we can see where his bones are. 
David must therefore be prophesying about the Messiah. And remember what Ben preached about a few weeks ago. Peter and the disciples witnessed Jesus ascend to the Father. And this is good news for sinners like you and me. As we talked about a moment ago, even those of us who are believers, we unfortunately still sin. We run back to the coffin, to that mindset of the flesh. But the ascended Lord Jesus is at the right hand of the Father and is actively interceding for us. How is it possible that those sins as believers do not disqualify us from our relationship with God? Because Jesus is actively praying for us right now. He is our advocate in the courts of heaven. He, in the same way he prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. He prays for you and for me. And the Father looks at the Son with joy and is pleased to forgive us. Does this mean that we shouldn't care how we should live because Jesus will cover our sins? No, the exact opposite. It should draw us into greater dependence on him because without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we have no hope. Jesus said that if we love him, if we truly love him, we will keep his commandments. So Jesus' ascension and prayer, interceding prayer for us gives us confidence. Gives us confidence that if we fail, Christ will catch us and hold us in his hand and never let us go. It drives us to him because we are dependent on him. And it drives us to walk in righteousness because our goal is to please God and to enjoy him forever. So beloved, if anyone is despairing over their sin, take hope. Jesus loves you. He is actively praying for you. Run to him. He has given you the Holy Spirit to guide you into truth and righteousness. Repent and walk in confidence, knowing that nothing can separate you from his love. Well, what if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus? What if you're saying, I'm not really sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not, I'm not really sure about this union with Christ that you're talking about. I'm not sure where I stand on Jesus as Messiah. What does this sermon mean for me? Well, in this passage, we see in Peter's conclusion that the Messiah is Lord. The Messiah is Lord. This is how Peter concludes. We talked about this at the top of the sermon. Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter's not pulling his punches. Peter claims that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. But Peter also makes clear that Jesus is Lord. Another word for Lord is master. If he is Messiah, then he is God. That means Jesus is in charge. As Josh said last week, Jesus is our boss. Some people claim that Jesus was a good moral teacher, kind of like what we would talk about in the 21st century as a life coach. Someone that uh, has good moral advice, might have good insight into life situations, can help us become the best version of ourselves. 
But that does not line up with who Jesus says he is. Look, imagine you had a friend that came to you and said that they started seeing a life coach. And you said, well, okay, like what, what did you guys talk about? And they said, well, it's kind of weird. He, he said that unless I love him more than my father or mother or any of my family, that I'm not worthy to be his client. <laughs> and like, okay, what else? They, and it's like, yeah, it was weird. He said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and no one could come to God except for him, my life coach. You would tell them to get out. You would tell them to get your money back and run far away. Why? Because they are saying things that only, they're making demands of you and making claims that only God has the right to make. And those are both things that Jesus said in the Gospels. Jesus is not claiming to be a good moral teacher. He is claiming to be God. He is claiming to be the Messiah. He does not want to be your life coach. He does not want to be someone who gives good advice that sometimes you follow and sometimes you don't. You weigh it against these other books or these other resources and you kind of weigh the pros and cons. No, Jesus is Lord. He wants to sit on the throne of your heart. He wants to be the center of your affections, the one you love most. Friend, is Jesus your Lord or your life coach? Jesus does not want to be someone who give, just gives good advice. He does not want to be your life coach. And if it's the latter, if, you're, if Jesus is your life coach, then you have a decision to make. Because you will stand before God one day and you will be held accountable for your sins. Every sinful decision, every wicked thought, every misplaced desire, every cruel word. In that moment, you don't need a life coach. You need Christ. You need him to cover you with his blood. And on that day, it will be too late. You need to be united with him in his death, and you need to be resurrected into newness of life. And that can be your story this morning. What does that look like? Repent. Grieve your sin. Turn away from your evil and selfish desires and turn back to God. And if you do that, Christ will cover you with the blood of his cross and send his Holy Spirit to you and unite himself to you. And you will have an advocate before the Father. And on that day, when you stand before God and are held accountable for your sins, you will hear the Son say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Father, this one is mine. To be clear, following Jesus does not mean life magically gets easier. If Jesus is Lord, that means he wants to sit on the throne of your heart. And if he's not on the throne, that means something else is. There is something or some things or somebody else that you love most in the world. And Jesus will lovingly make war with your idols. He will make war with them because he wants and deserves to be what we love most. 
And when the things that we love most get challenged, there is pain. But know that Jesus does not cut with a machete like Rambo. He cuts with a scalpel like a surgeon. He does not cut to wound, but to heal. There will be cost. There will be pain. But beloved, Jesus is worth it. He's a treasure in the field that we will sell everything to gain. He is the king of the universe. He is God. He is the Messiah. Let's close in prayer. Lord, you are good. You are Messiah. You are God. Lord, I just pray this morning that all of us would be thankful and worshipful because you sent us your Holy Spirit, because you fulfilled your promises that you made through your prophets, because you opened blind eyes to your goodness and glory, because you have risen and ascended. You intercede for us. Lord, help us to fight against sin those times where we're tempted to reopen that casket help us to walk in newness of life. And if anyone here has not put their faith in Christ, I pray that you would open their eyes to your goodness and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.